Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be discussing the most important question asked by Jesus that every person must answer. Who do you say that I am? So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't I open us up in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day and for this group and for our ability to continue to gather together here. We appreciate the law firm opening up their offices to us each week to be able to do this. We also thank you for all the people who are able to dial in and join us remotely and those who will be listening in later to the podcast. Father, I ask that you guide our discussion today. Let it be your words, not mine. And I just ask the Holy Spirit to lead us and teach us what we need to know to make us into the people that you want us to be. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are continuing our study of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 9 now. And just to set this up, about this time now in the Gospel of Luke, we're about halfway through Jesus' ministry. That's about where we are. So his crucifixion is about 18 months away. And what we're going to see now, he's been training the disciples and the apostles. We're going to see in the next two chapters, he's going to send them out. Today we're going to see he's going to send the 12 apostles out. When we get to chapter 10, we'll see he's going to send 70 out. But he's been training them, so now it's time to start sending them out into ministry. And as we'll see in verse 1, he's going to send out the 12 together. Why 12? Well, 12 may be symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. But certainly we see in various verses that they're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. We'll see that when we get to Luke 22, verses 28 through 30. And also their names are written on the foundation stones of New Jerusalem, the 12 apostles. So that's in Revelation 21, 14. In any event, there's 12 of them. So let's begin chapter 9, verse 1. And he, being Jesus, called the 12 together. So this is the 12 apostles. He gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. We won't see it in Luke's account, but in Matthew 10, 8, he also gave them the power to raise the dead. And so why does he give them this power? Why do they need this power to cast out demons and heal diseases and raise people from the dead? Remember, the New Testament is not written yet. So they need to have this ability to heal, to show their authority, to validate their authority from God. That's why they have and why they're given that power. We have scripture today, so we don't see this type of power I'm not saying it can't exist. It could exist. I haven't seen it. It isn't something that we see like we saw then at that time with the apostles. So verse 2, And Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. This is their single mission, to go proclaim the kingdom of God. This is a message that we all have sin. We need to repent from our sin, that Jesus is here. That's where our forgiveness comes, through Jesus Christ. And that's how we get our salvation. It's by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this healing is there just really to validate their authority. Verse 3, And Jesus said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. A couple of things here. This is their first time being sent out, so Jesus is teaching them to totally depend on God. That's what he's telling them to do. Depend on God to sustain them 
He's also telling them, unlike what you would see with the false teachers that were going out and will continue to go out even after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, they'd go house to house, but they'd be collecting money. They were doing it to enrich themselves, and he wants to differentiate these apostles from these false teachers. Now, he's later going to change the rules on how they are to go out. Let me just show you that real quick. Hold your finger here. Let's go over to Luke 22. We'll get to that eventually, but let me just point it out here because then you'll say, well, wait, it's different. Luke 22, and he's referring to this in verse 35. Luke 22, verse 35. Jesus said to them, when I sent you out without a purse and a bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? So he's referring back what we're reading right now. When he sent them out, he sent them out with nothing, and yet they didn't lack anything. God took care of them. You see, they say, no, nothing. We didn't lack anything. People opened their homes to them at that time. They were welcomed for the most part. People wanted to hear and see the miracles and what have you. They didn't all believe. But now when he's sending them out, look in verse 36, he said, and he said to them, but now let him who has a purse take it along, likewise also a bag, and let him who has no sword sell his robe and go buy one. What he's talking about, take a sword, he's just kind of using that in a figurative sense. You don't see anywhere like in the Acts or anywhere else in Scripture where they were carrying a sword with them. And in fact, when Peter, remember when they come to get Jesus after he's betrayed by Judas, remember Peter pulls out his sword and whacks off the guy's ear, and Jesus says, put it away. That's not how we're doing things. We're not going to do it that way. And if you look, he even says that further down. If we keep reading verse 37, for I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was classed among the criminals for that which refers to me is its fulfillment. It's its next verse. And they said, look, look, here are two swords. So they're saying, okay, you said bring a sword. Yeah, look, here's two of them. And Jesus said to them, it is enough. And what that means is enough of that kind of talk. You don't need a sword. You need to depend on God. So he was just using that. They need to be prepared. That's what he's really talking about. They need to be more aware and protect themselves. He's warning them that they're going to be persecuted once he is crucified and buried and raised from the dead. So he's from rebuking the them then. Yeah, yeah. He says, we're not talking about swords. He doesn't want them doing battle with swords. He was using that figuratively. I thought it was more on the sense that he wanted to make sure they were seen as criminals, in a sense, so have two swords. Now that's enough. So it's not like he wants them to carry swords around, but to fulfill the scripture that they have swords, they were numbered among the criminals. That's kind of how I take that. I'm, I'm good with that, too, mm-hmm. because also says Jesus was numbered of the criminals, and that's mm-hmm. because he had to take on our sin. Right. And um, I think that's bearing the sword is like, yeah, I got my gun here. Okay, well, you're obviously a drug dealer. I feel like that's where he's going with that. I'm good with that. Okay, let's go back over to Luke 9. We'll continue on. Verse 4 is where we left off. In whatever house you enter, stay there and take your leave from there. And as for those who do not receive you, when you depart from that city, shake off the dust from your feet as testimony against them. So this was a traditional Jewish gesture. They'd do that when they were traveling through Gentile territory, pagan country, because it was unclean. And this was also a way to say judgment is going to come on you because you've rejected the message of Jesus. 
I think he's also saying don't waste time in areas that people are rejecting you. Move on. Go spend your time with people who actually want to hear the message. Verse 6, in departing, they began going about among the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Verse 7, now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John, this is talking about John the Baptist, John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. First, let me explain which Herod this is because it can get kind of confusing with multiple Herods. This is referring to Herod Antipas. We've talked about him before. He ruled in Galilee from about 4 B.C. to about 39 A.D., He is son of Herod the Great. So when Herod the Great died, his area was divided into four areas. His domain was divided among his three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip, and then a fourth man named Lysanias. And we don't know much about him. He wasn't one of his sons. Divided among the four. And so Tetrarch means ruler of one-fourth of the region. That's what that means. Whenever you really see the name Herod mentioned during Jesus' ministry time, that's the Herod that we're talking about, okay? And eventually, he is going to come before Herod. We'll read about that when we start looking at Jesus' trial and that kind of thing. But So Herod Antipas is... The son of Herod the Great, Mm -hmm. along with two other sons as well. Remember, the whole reason that Herod executed John the Baptist was because Herod was having an affair with his brother's wife, Philip's wife, and John the Baptist said, you shouldn't be doing that. And his wife, Herodias, got really irritated and asked for his head on a platter when her daughter danced for Herod. You remember all that? Okay. So that's what this is referring to when he says, some were saying that John the Baptist had risen from the dead. Well, it was Herod who had him killed. And we'll even see that here in just a second. In fact, we're there, verse 9. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? You know, that's a really important question. How any of us answer that question is going to determine your eternity. Who is this man that we hear about these things? How you answer that question is very, very important. But it says Herod kept trying to see Jesus, but Herod was not an honest seeker. He actually wants to kill Jesus. We'll get to that. I'll just take us over there real quick. Luke 13, 31 says, Just at that time, some Pharisees came up saying to him, Go away, depart from Herod, for Herod wants to kill you. So Herod is not an honest seeker here. And later he's going to be sent to Herod for questioning Pilate will send him there. Herod will mock him along with the soldiers. We'll see that when we get over to Luke I think it's interesting what he says there, Larry. He, he replied, Jesus does, go tell that fox. Mm-hmm. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll reach my goal. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> so Herod is not an honest seeker. He does not like Jesus. Okay, we'll go back over to Luke. Luke 10, and when the apostles returned, okay, so they'd been out healing and teaching they come back and they gave an account to Jesus of all that they had done and taking them with him Jesus takes the apostles with them he withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida okay so he knew that they needed some rest they'd been out doing ministry he wanted to take them away give them some rest 
The exact location of Bethsaida is not exactly known, but it's more than likely right on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. It is the hometown, most likely, of Andrew and Peter, who were two of the apostles and brothers. You can read that in John 1, 44. Also of Philip, that's in John 12, 21, and possibly even Nathaniel in John 1, 45 is where I picked that up. While we see these apostles coming from there, when we get over to Luke 10, verse 13 and 14, we'll see that most of the citizens of that area, the residents of that area, reject Jesus. Verse 11, But the multitudes were aware of this and followed him and welcoming them. He began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. So these people, they keep coming to him. They really want more miracles. They want more food. But Jesus keeps speaking truth to them. Verse 12, and the day began to decline. So that means it's after high noon, somewhere from noon to later in the afternoon. And the 12, the 12 apostles, came and said to Jesus, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodgings and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. This wording here, desolate place, it doesn't mean it was desert. Okay, it's actually green. It's very green there. There's grass there. You can go look in Mark 6.39. It says there's grass in John 6.10. It also says there's grass. In fact, he instructs them to sit on the grass. So it's not desert. It just means it's a place that people don't live. There isn't any place to go get food. My translation says a remote place. That's better. Verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. There's a little more detail in some of the other Gospels. For instance, in John, it looks like Andrew, maybe some of the others had actually taken an inventory. And they had found that this one young boy, he had some kind of like a lunch kit. You know, (laughs) he had his little basket lunch with him. And these five loaves, these are small biscuits, all right? And the fish are more like sardines. So this is an individual meal that they found. That's all they had. And we also see that sarcastically, Philip said, even a year's salary wouldn't be enough money to buy food for all these people. You can look at that in John 6, 7. And why is that? We see in verse 14, there were about 5,000 men So that's just the men. So with women and children, it could be 15 to 25,000 people there. We're talking about a multitude, a lot of people. So how in the world is this small little sack lunch going to feed thousands and thousands of people? But what does Jesus say there in verse 14? He says to his disciples, have them recline to eat in groups of about 50 each. It's like, okay, we're going to feed them what? (laughs) What are we going to do? While they may have been shocked, they still obey. They sat them down on the grass, verse 15. They did so, and they had them all recline. Verse 16, and Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. So he looks up to heaven, to God the Father, acknowledges him as the source of all, and then he breaks the bread, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they all ate and were satisfied, And that which was left over to them of the broken pieces was picked up 12 baskets full. So what remained, each apostle had their own basket. So Jesus shows his power. He has this miracle happen. But it's not just a minimal 
type of meal. It's a bountiful meal. It's in abundance. It shows God his beautiful grace. It's not just a little snack, but nothing was wasted. There was enough for each apostle to even have a whole basket full. So this feeding of the 5,000, it's more than 5,000, but it's referred to the feeding of the 5,000 because it's 5,000 men. This is one of only two miracles that are in all four of the Gospels, the other miracle being Jesus' resurrection. But it was so powerful that now the people wanted to try to make Jesus king. They're starting to think, this has to be the Messiah, and we're looking for a conquering king. We want to make Jesus king to overthrow the Romans. That's what they're looking for. And you can look at that. I'll just take you over there real quick. I don't want you having to jump around too much. It's in John 6, 15. It says, Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. We're going to see that the crowd even showed up the next morning for breakfast in Capernaum. That's in John 6, 16, right after what I just read to 27. And they're looking for more free food, but they really want Jesus to oust the Romans and create the kingdom that they've been looking for. Verse 18, And it came about that while he was praying alone, so see, this is when he withdrew alone that we saw in John, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the multitudes say that I am? Again, this is the most important question for each of us to answer. Who do we believe Jesus to be? And what he's asking, we're going to see here in the next few verses, This is kind of like their final exam, and it's got two questions. He's going to ask them, what is everybody else? What are they saying? Who do they say that I am? And then the second question in the final exam is, who do you say that I am? I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Let's read this, and then let me come back. He says, who do the multitudes say that I am? Verse 19, and they answered and said, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. What's amazing is even with all the prophecies in the Old Testament that have now been fulfilled and the miracles, these people are still going to reject. You can look over in John 12, 35 to 43. I'll go over there real quick. Let me see what I want to point out. It says in verse 37, Though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And then you drop down a little bit further. It says, Nevertheless, many, even the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They'd be told to never come back to the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And, you know, we see that a lot. I see it a lot when I'm talking to people, sharing the gospel particularly Jewish people, and sometimes I even see this with some Catholics that I'm working with. And it's like, you're telling me things that my family for generations, they believed it differently. You're telling me to go against what, I was talking to a Catholic just yesterday, what you're telling me is so different than what I was taught. And they're more concerned about the approval of their family than they are about the truth that's written in the Word of God. Yeah, We have Hindus at our church the same way, and one would be dating a Christians, which, you know, obviously is not good, but they're afraid to convert to Christianity because their parents, it would be we'll over, over. Yeah, it's over. And so that is such a high cost. Yes. And so I'm like, well, I mean, do you want eternal life? 
Jesus forever. Like, oh, I do, but you know, my parents. and uh, It's just so, it's so hard. It's so entrenched. Yeah. And I tell him, look, I was that way too. My parents taught me what they were taught. And then somebody fortunately brought the gospel out and showed me that I can't earn my salvation. Jesus died once, paid for all my sins, past, present, future. They're paid for, done. When I place my faith in Jesus Christ, I am assured of my salvation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they say, well, yeah, but that's not what I was taught. Okay, you got two choices. You can go with what you were taught, <laughs> or you can go with what God's telling you. And, yeah. you know, I'll leave that to you. You make the choice. Free will, baby. Yes, <laughs> you have free will. Okay, let's go back over where we left off. Verse 20. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So this has been God's plan as prophesied. We can go back. Let's go over and look in Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 53. Yeah, Isaiah 53. You know, let's just go look at that. That's what's so amazing. He knew the whole thing was going to go down. Yeah, Isaiah 53, 4 through 10. It says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men. That could be the criminals, but it's also like Chris was just talking about. He took on all of our sin, so he bore all of our sin. So he's assigned to a grave to be with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death. Remember, he was buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased. This is God the Father. This is really not the best translation, I don't think, because, let me read it. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. I don't think the Father took joy from seeing his son crushed. I don't think it's that kind of pleased. But he was pleased that his will and the whole plan for our salvation was being fulfilled. Here's this pleased to crush him that's what it says huh. what yeah. does yours say it was the will of the lord to crush that's him. way better interesting yeah go back and look at the, the original hebrew. Yeah. the hebrew this is a new american standard yeah that's so pretty, it's pretty right straight on. anyway uh that's why i wanted to clarify that if he would render himself as a guilt offering he will see his offspring he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I could read on, but there's the prophecy. And you look at how this thing went down. I mean, he fulfilled this. That was written 800 years before yeah. Jesus shows up. And so. Jesus knew all this was going to happen to him. While he was healing and he was doing all this, he knew that he was going to get shunned. And oh, yeah. 
Let me show you a couple of things here that we read. I told you I was going to come back to it. The second exam question, who do you say that I am? And Luke doesn't include this in his account, but Matthew does. Let me just go over there and read that to you real quick. I'm in Matthew 16. I'll start in verse 15. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, here's the important thing that isn't in Luke, verse 17, that I want to point out. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So the only way we can answer that question, that final exam question, who do we say that Jesus is, is the Holy Spirit enabling us and teaching us and giving us that knowledge. I'll show you another couple of verses that say the same thing. I'm going to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'll start at verse 10. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. So it's given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. While this is talking about more broadly even than what I'm referring to here, I wanted to point that out. And then also over in 1 Corinthians 12, Verse 3, it says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It was interesting. I don't know why this came to me. I get in here early before the lesson to go through it one more time before you all get here. And it came to my mind, what about Judas? And I went back and looked in all the Gospels, and I couldn't see where Judas ever called Jesus Lord. He called him rabbi, he called him master, never called him Lord. I just thought that was instructive. The fact that we can say Jesus is Lord. I had a guy that called me out of the blue, picked up my webcast or something somewhere, sent me an email first and then uh, talked to him on the phone. And I asked him if he was a Christian and he said yes. And I started, tell me about when you became a Christian. And he said all his life. Well, when I hear that, I know something's wrong because that's impossible. So I started peeling the onion back a little bit, and I noticed he could not say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And I even asked him to say it, and he would change the subject. And I knew about these verses. I've never seen this before. I said, you cannot say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And he would go off on another tangent. And I said, dude, you know, you're not really a Christian. He goes, well, I'm intrigued by the teachings of Jesus Christ. I said, you're not a Christian. I said, if you can't say Jesus, yeah, I'm on the phone. Stop stealing the I, I said, if you can't say Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you don't have the Holy Spirit in your heart. He wanted to argue with me about everything else, but he would not say that. It was the weirdest thing. I've never seen anything like that. Look, I don't know who's saved. Don't get me wrong. 
Only God knows people's hearts. But if you can't say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, there's some kind of problem there. Uh, Let's go back over to Luke, and I'll finish up. Verse 23. And Jesus was saying to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Okay, basically means you're going to have eternal separation from God. In the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. All right, I'm going to stop right there today because what this is leading to, we're going to pick up next time talking about the transfiguration. That is what this is referring to. So I'll make a little more sense of verse 27. That's where we'll pick up next time. I just know I don't have time to cover that in our remaining time, and I don't want to speed through it. So let me stop right there for today. And I want to hear from you all, what is the application that you're going to apply in your life based on what we've read today? What is this telling us that we need to go do? I'll give one, see and hear these questions. Actually, the big questions that Herod asked, the question that Jesus asked of the crowd, the question that Jesus asked of his disciples, and then Jesus gave the answer. Somebody there at the table a while ago said, We have free will. So the application is we have to decide. That's good. Not only do we have to decide who he is, but then this last part that I was reading, we've got to pick up our cross every day. We've got to allow Jesus to work in and through us every day. And remember the verse earlier that was talking about people didn't want to believe because they sought the approval of men more than the approval of God. And I just think about how many times me, all of us, I'm guessing, from time to time don't want to speak up, don't want to say anything because either it's going to be a little disruptive or it might make somebody uncomfortable We don't want to ruin the atmosphere by bringing up Jesus Christ right now. I mean, why would we want to do that? We're kind of having a nice little talk about who won the football game or, you know, whatever. If we know that he is the Son of God, the Savior sent to the world, save us from our sin, then the question is, what do we do with that? What we've got to do with that is basically, as John the Baptist said, repent, which means realize that we are a sinner and that we are in need of a Savior, and give up our self-efforts and our self-pride, and I can get there on my own, I don't need God, our self-efforts, self-made man, that's what our culture loves to see. Yeah, self-made man, yeah, right. Everything we have is from God, and we gotta realize, and not take for, even us as believers, I think, can get, particularly in this country, into a sense of complacency because we are so comfortable, unlike Afghanistan, like what we've been seeing on TV. We are very comfortable. We got everything more than we could ever, ever, ever need. And we're just comfortable. And while we believe we have faith, are we truly doing what God has left us here to do? That's the real question. And that's why he went on. 
He's saying, if you want to come after me, you got to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. We've got to quit spending our time in the next verse trying to save our life and make our life. That was the big thing I was trying to do until that terrible tragedy happened to my daughter. I wanted to be somebody. I wanted to be somebody and be recognized as somebody rather than being a servant of the Most High God. And it took that terrible tragedy to realize how proud I was, how prideful. While I was a Christian and I had saving faith, my time here was focused on how do I elevate myself? I want to be somebody instead of, wow, I am so thankful for what Jesus has done for me. And now I'm part of his team. What does he want me to do? And I'm not telling you I get it right every day, but I didn't get it right hardly at all until I realized that it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about what God wants to do in and through us. And are we allowing that to happen each day? Sometimes we take, obviously we're taking this stuff on faith, uh, clearly. And what, what that means for us, though, is that for us to walk in that faith first before seeing, you know, blessed are those who believe and haven't seen. That's what Jesus said to Thomas. And so here we are believing, and one day we will see, and we get little glimpses of that. And so I think recognizing the glimpses of God's grace or his miracle power or his divine providence behind everything, for me, is all just goes back to, oh, right, that's because I believe I can see. Yeah, my thing that I don't have the right word to describe it. It's not a fear, but it, maybe it's angst. Maybe I should say it's the part of going to heaven that I'm not looking forward to. I don't, and that's too strong, too. So I can't describe this right. But when I tell you what is going through my head, it'll make more sense to you. I don't look forward to standing in front of Jesus. And we won't be judged for our sins. Our sins, they're paid for. God says he won't remember our sins as far as east is from west. You know how far that is? You can't, it's infinite. So we're not going to be judged for our sins, but we are going to have to give an accounting for what we did with the opportunities that God gave us. And that's the part I have angst over because I know how many times God has had opportunities for me to say something or be a witness and either I was too busy, it would be an inconvenience at the time. I'm not looking forward to that. And it isn't a salvation thing. That's not what I'm talking about. It's just my heart is going to be, I'm going to be so sad that I didn't live my life the way Jesus wanted me to, which means I don't have all the abundance that I would have now. It also means the impacts will be, you know, rewards in heaven. I want to stand in front of the Lord and I want him to say to me, well done, my good faithful servant. Yeah, I do too. I fall so far short. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, how far I fall short. Something for us all to think about and pray about each day. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and my weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.